Thank you, Alex, for sharing with us that wonderful story from Luke's Gospel. It's the only uh, story we have about Jesus um, from the time of his birth and then dedication in the temple, also in Luke, until he appears at the River Jordan um, for his baptism by his cousin John. If anything would remind us that the Gospels do not claim to be biographies, it would be that fact alone. Biographies tend to want to flesh out the person's childhood and early adulthood experiences so we can understand their character and the events that contributed to their remarkable lives that warranted being recorded in a biography. Uh, But here we have just one story because the Gospels are really written to help us understand who Jesus was in larger terms, not by the standards of modern biography, but the deep spiritual reality of who he is as the embodiment of God's love in the world. Luke, in particular, uh, wants to show how Jesus has come in his ministry for the express purpose of preaching the good news to the poor and the downtrodden, the dispossessed and the despised, both men and also remarkably in the patriarchal world in which he lived, uh, women as well. Women play an incredibly important role in Luke's gospel, and among those certainly um, his mother, Mary, who's reported in the birth narrative following the arrival of the shepherds on that cold night underneath the stars, and she kept all these things, the gospel says, and pondered them in her heart. And so they had gone, Mary and Joseph, devout Jews with their son Jesus, up for one of the great pilgrimage festivals. Jews from around the land would journey to Jerusalem for these three great pilgrimage festivals, principal among them the Passover which was so important in the time of Jesus because it was the way in which the people remembered God as a savior who reached down into the mud of Egyptian slavery and saved a people Israel and brought them out across the desert at Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments and ultimately following 40 years into the land that was promised. So though they were not enslaved by the Romans, they were suffering greatly. So Jesus and his contemporaries looked to God as a savior who would help those who have low estate, as Mary called herself, and as Jesus and all of his followers certainly were. And so going up and now traveling back to their home, they discover that Jesus isn't with them. He's not out running around, gallivanting around town, but after three days they find him, and he says, wouldn't, wouldn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And then in verse 52, Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And then Mary pondered all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. So the evangelist steps back and lets the nest of the story of Jesus' formation uh, continue under wraps, as it were, in the knowledge that Mary continues to ponder all these things 
in her heart. This is the great gift of epiphany for all of us this season in which we find ourselves to ponder the great mystery of the incarnation. Mystery is something which can never really fully be explained, can only be experienced, can't be described, but only can be delighted in finding ourselves in that. The English word mutter and mystery have the same root in the Greek, muain, muain, that mystery, which also means muttering. In the face of a mystery, we cannot do anything but mutter, because there's nothing really to be said. The presence of God in our lives, ultimately, if we're honest about a true encounter with divinity, leaves us speechless. Who could speak of the mind and experience of God? This was very much upon the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. All of the oldest New Testament writings, predating the Gospels even, are the letters of Paul. He begins his ministry traveling around the Mediterranean as an evangelist, ultimately at the instruction of the church in Jerusalem to go specifically to the Gentile communities. Christianity in its earliest nascent form is a sect within Judaism. Jesus and his followers, his family, are all Jews. All those attracted to him who follow him, who claim him to be Lord, are Jews. But early on, others, not Jews, Gentiles, are drawn to this growing movement. And not surprisingly, because it was within the synagogue that the early Christian movement began. And the synagogue in the time of Jesus was full of Gentiles. That is to say, individuals who were drawn to the ethical monotheism of Judaism. They'd grown tired and somewhat jaded about the mystery cults of the Greco-Roman pantheon and mythology, and were looking for something with a deeper moral, ethical grounding in life. And so synagogues were full of Gentiles who would pray They weren't technically Jewish, but they participated in the prayers. They were called the friends of the synagogue. And so some of these Gentile friends are drawn to the word that other Jews are telling them about Jesus. And so ultimately, Peter and James and the other leaders of the Jerusalem church say to Paul, you should go and preach to the Gentiles because he was thoroughly inculcated in Greco-Roman culture. He'd grown up in the gymnasium. He spoke Greek fluently. He wasn't from Judea. He was from Asia Minor. He was, in a sense, more cosmopolitan than the Judean followers of Jesus, and those certainly from Galilee. And so he becomes the one who goes to the Gentile world. That the covenant of God with Israel is inseparable. God and Israel cannot be separated. But what Jesus will do in the preaching of Paul is to knit into that inseparable bond the Gentile world. We will become the younger cousins of our elder family members, the Jews, in a covenant of great love and care and compassion.
And so Paul, in one of his letters, perhaps one of the most important of his letters, and certainly in one of the chapters which rings most fully in our consciousness and claims a singular place in the scriptures, is in his first letter to the Corinthians in the 13th chapter, sometimes called Paul's great hymn to love. And it's so thoroughly familiar to us and is used in so many different settings that it becomes easy to forget the true intent of Paul's writing. An excellent author in Greek, he weaves long and elaborate arguments. And chapter 13 can really only be understood as the center point of a point uh, of an argument that he is making in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians because of the conflicts that existed within that congregation. People were bragging about themselves. They were claiming some spiritual gifts to be greater than other spiritual gifts. They were presuming authority which really wasn't theirs. They were bragging and boasting and disregarding the needs of the poor in complete contravention of everything that Jesus had taught about humility and forgiveness, forbearance and compassion and charity of love. And so Paul writes to them to correct their competition, to call their competition to light and expose it for what it is, vanity and truly a corruption of the gospel. That's in chapter 12. In chapter 13, he will name some of those gifts in the first person. That is to say, Paul will claim those particular spiritual gifts as some which he himself possesses. So when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men, humans, or of angels, he is saying, I speak angelic glossolalia, this ecstatic utterance. If I have prophecy, Paul is a prophet. If I give sacrificially, Paul gives sacrificially. But in each case, if I do those things without love, it's nothing. Love is not a spiritual gift. It's not a talent. It's the nature of our relationship with God. It is God's love for us that makes all things possible in Paul's theology. And so this week and two more weeks following, I want to spend some time digging more deeply into this seminal chapter, peeling away some of the layers that have accreted to it over time and looking at Paul's original intention about what constitutes an authentic Christian life. He ends, of course, with faith, pistis in the Greek. Pistis really doesn't mean faith in the sense of a theological acknowledgement or acceptance of a proposition or an idea, I have faith or I believe the faith, as though it's an objective fact that sits out here to which we subscribe. Pistis in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek, is really more aligned with a sense of the nature of a relationship which is based in trust. 
that faith is the quality of a relationship, not the cognitive assent to an idea. So faith, hope, this great hope. What is hope? We'll look at that in some more detail next week. And then, so faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This love which becomes the undergirding to which Paul always points throughout his letter as the yardstick by which we measure everything that we do to ask ourselves, is it done in love? Am I acting in love with deep humility, a true understanding of my relationship with God as a servant of God? And so from Paul, if I speak in tongues mortal or angelic, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I give away all my possessions, hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So here he has noted three particular gifts of the early church, speaking in tongues, glossolalia, prophecy and knowledge, and acts of charity, giving away everything that I have, even my own body, so that I might boast of how generous I am. If I do all these things without love, I am nothing, I gain nothing, it is nothing. So then he goes on to ascribe, in, to describe what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. One can imagine the Corinthians squirming in their seats as these hear, hear these words of Paul read to them. All of his letters were read to a congregation, not read by individuals off of a page, but they heard it. Love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the right, in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now this is quite a list. Not irritable, resentful, arrogant, boastful, insisting on one's own way. Uh oh. This is a different kind of love, isn't it? The word love in the English language is used in so many different ways that it's lost some of its punch, its power. 
its specificity. The Greek, of course, gives us more options because there are different words for different kinds of love, very wisely, I would say. Eros, which is physical love between two individuals. Philos, brotherly love. Philia, sisterly love. Philadelphia, the city of love. Agape, an unconditional love, a love that gives because it is love's nature to give, a love without end, a divine love. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about romance. He's not talking about the love between two individuals. He's talking about the love which is the very foundation of the universe and the certainly the controlling and defining element that lies at the heart of the church, which is why, of course, John in the first letter writes, God is love. God is not a being. God is not an entity. God is love which is to say, essentially, that God is relationship. Because love means something when it's in relationship. So God is love. That's why he can write in verse 8, love never ends. Eros, philia, filio, those end all the time. But this love, agape love, never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know only in part. This is the great humility of religious knowledge. We know only in part But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, and then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Amen. Now in chapter 14, he will go on to explicate how that love is expressed in the life of of the church. When he says, pursue love and then strive for the spiritual gifts. Not strive for spiritual gifts and then make love a little add-on, but to pursue love. And then the spiritual gifts will come to you. The things that God endows and imbues into your life will rise to the surface when we live in that love. Love is not a spiritual gift. Love is something that we receive from God. 
Paul's essential point throughout this letter is that the love that we share is a response to the love that we have received. We are reciprocating by paying forward the love that God has given to us. This is the love that's not anxious or jealous or boastful or arrogant or rude. This is the love which never ends. This is the love which defines, redefines, transforms, saves our lives. And thereby becomes the launching pad from which we live the rest of our lives. It all begins in faith, a relationship, pistis, this trusting relationship. Love requires then, at its beginning, a very significant measure of courage. Courage to step out from what we know, to stop seeking for certainty in that which we can describe and prove. Courage to let go of the vainglorious attempt at controlling everything in our lives, having the courage to let go and cast ourselves into the mystery of God. It entails taking a moment, stopping, listening, actually listening to the silence. We cannot hear God because of that cacophony with which we have surrounded ourselves, in which we have immersed ourselves, which has subverted our consciousness. Social media is a pox upon our house in the bane of our consciousness. You may have seen Molly Basquette's uh, devotional in this morning's United Church of Christ Daily Devotional about social media, in which she says, you know, there are only two businesses that use the word user for their customers. Illicit drugs and social media. It is addictive and destructive to shut it off, set it aside, step back. In the winter, the trees are bare. What a gift this wintering is, that we can pause for a minute and look at a tree and perceive its complexity, the massive tree, which is mirrored in the ground beneath. I think I've told you about the wonderful novel that I read this summer, Overstory, 
about the intellectual and emotional and spiritual lives of trees, the oldest living beings on the planet. The earth is not a place of people that has trees. The earth is a place that has trees and has persons, human beings as well. Listen like the trees. Meditate upon the presence of God. Allow your hearts and minds to be touched by the mystery, to trust, that is to have faith that you will fall into the arms of a God who is love. Amen.